This is Voices of COVID-19. I'm Brian Lucas. Thanks for joining us. As we enter April 2020, the coronavirus pandemic is continuing to spread. Three quarters of the United States is under some sort of a stay-at-home order. More than 190,000 COVID-19 cases have been reported in the United States and nearly 900,000 worldwide. In the United States, the epicenter of COVID-19 has undoubtedly been New York City. More than 44,000 cases have been reported there and more than 1,000 deaths. New York is once again being asked to rise to a challenge that few people could have imagined just a couple of months ago. Social distancing and isolation are key to New York trying to flatten the curve of the virus. But even in the midst of a lockdown, life goes on. And with that, we continue to have basic needs as a society that need to be met. In addition to food, shelter, and healthcare, we have other human needs for laughter, for love, and for connection that may be more important now than ever. With that, I'd like to welcome my guest who is on the front lines in New York helping meet these other vital human needs. Rabbi Josh Davidson is Senior Rabbi at Temple Emmanuel in the heart of Manhattan. Temple Emmanuel serves more than 2,000 families, a huge responsibility in normal times, and one that has taken on new levels of complexity in the time of COVID-19. Josh has been Senior Rabbi at Emmanuel since 2013, and full disclosure, Josh and I were college roommates for four years at Princeton University, so we go way back. Josh, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. I'm delighted and, uh, and honored. Thank you, Brian. So first I want to ask, how are you doing? You're in the heart of New York. Can you describe what it's like around you right now? On the one hand, it's, it's somewhat eerie, um, given that the streets are, are much quieter than normal, though there's still some traffic. And on the other hand, it may be busier than it's ever been because of all of the communications that we're engaged in by phone and by email. We're all doing the best we can to reach out and be present in people's lives um, in these very uh, unusual and trying circumstances. So not long ago, you stood in your temple and you delivered a, a message to an empty room. You streamed the message out to your congregation. Can you describe that moment what was it like the first time that you looked out at an empty room and had to deliver a message like that? You know, our sanctuary seats 2,500 people. It's a beautiful space when it's full. When I was speaking, standing, looking out at the empty space, which is stunning just as a work of architecture, I could in a very wonderful way, feel the presence of the congregation there. And so it wasn't quite as, as sad as I thought it would be because I imagined that the congregation was present um, as so many were online. I guess one of the beauties of community is that through the relationships you develop, you, you know that you're together even when you're not physically together. And that's really the message that we've been trying to convey, that people who might feel physically isolated really aren't alone because the community is there caring for them. Was there a moment when you realized that this was not just another 
virus, that this was going to change things and that you were going to have to become sort of a virtual synagogue? When did that hit you? So I guess it was about two weeks ago that we realized that we would be moving to virtual worship and virtual programming. And virtual is sort of an unusual word because it suggests that it's not actually real, um, but it is. Um, we're still praying together and we'll, we're still learning together and we're still running our nursery school and we're still running our religious school. and We're still offering bereavement groups. So it's not virtual. It's not the way we would want it to be, but I believe it's still very real. It's interesting you say that. One of the questions I had was, how does a rabbi socially distance yourself? Because what your congregants need a lot of times is connection. But it sounds like you have felt as though you've been able to find that connection in a different way. I, I think we have. Um, it's certainly not the same because sometimes what people really need is a hug, but you discover ways to convey the same emotion and the same closeness and the same concern through words and uh, through crying together on the phone or through laughing together on the phone. I and my colleagues have been spending a lot of time just speaking with people, you know, letting them know that we're there listening to what's going on in their lives and their fears and sharing the fears that we have too. In many ways, it's been uh, really quite beautiful. Have you had a challenge sometimes telling people or serving people who are going through major milestones in their life at this time? I mean, I think there's there are certain moments, weddings, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, and I guess on the other end of the spectrum, funerals, pe- you know, people trying to honor those who have passed on. Life goes on under coronavirus, but it's very different now. For those major milestones, how do you handle that? And what do you tell people who may may have been looking forward to those moments for so long or those moments are so important to them now? Well, that's really been um, the most heartbreaking um, part of it. I'll start with the, you know, the most tragic. Um, so there are um, a lot of people dying, and um, there are a lot of people dying alone. Their children aren't able to be with them. Sometimes their spouses are not able to be with them. I've officiated, my colleagues have officiated at funerals um, that are now only at the cemetery graveside, where people are standing you know, six to eight feet apart from one another. It's it's eerie. It's like nothing I've ever experienced in my rabbinate in that way. Um, but we are doing the best we can to honor those who have passed and, and celebrate their lives. But it's very, very hard. Then there are the other moments. Some of those we have been able to do um, through the use of technology. I officiated at a bat mitzvah this past weekend where I and my colleague, our cantor, were in two boxes on the screen, each from our own living room. The uh, bat mitzvah family was seated around their dining room table on another box in the screen. And the grandparents and cousins were in two more boxes. And we were able to allow the bat mitzvah girl to read from the Torah, the five books of Moses, to give her sermon 
the grandparents and cousins were able to offer the blessings that we would normally have them offer, as were um, the young woman's parents. And it was really rather extraordinary. There was a beauty to it that we found by virtue of trying it, that when we're all back together in the sanctuary, we'll learn from, we'll be able to bring some of that in uh, to our normal worship. There have been weddings that we have had to postpone and baby namings that we've similarly done uh, using the, uh, the computer technology available to us. And it's very important to continue to celebrate these moments of joy because we need them. Um, they, they lift us all up. Even as we're challenged with a new reality, it sounds like the life that you deal with and the lives that you deal with are finding their own path forward. Is that safe to say? Yeah, they are. Look, I mean, you've got parents with young children who thankfully don't fully understand the magnitude of this, um, of this crisis. And parents have to continue to uh, keep their young children engaged and happy and smiling. Um, you know, there are still, for many of us, uh, the opportunity to sit around the, the dinner table and talk about our days, which are more interesting in, in, in ways than perhaps they had been. And so those moments um, still continue, and uh, we have to embrace them. Uh, it's very easy to sit in front of the television and watch the news 24 hours a day, but we can't do that. Um, it's important to know what's going on, but it's also important to embrace those moments um, that we can uh, find with one another and, and to continue to call our friends and to check in on our neighbors um, because they you know, they need us too. On your website, you talk about your temple as a place to share moments of joy as well as times of sadness. Day to day, can you still find moments of joy in this time? Yeah, I mean, I think we can. You know, the amount of creativity that's being generated right now is extraordinary. It's inspiring to see what, you know, what your colleagues are doing, um, either on your particular team or in your field around you. And then there's still the day-to-day you know, things that come up that are funny. Um, and uh, we laugh a little bit harder uh, maybe than we did because we need it. But there is still that joy and it's important to to not bypass it. Does it still seem unreal to you in some ways? Are there still moments where you, where it just hits you suddenly and unexpectedly what's going on? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, the other night I was, I was, putting the dishes in the dishwasher and I didn't realize it, but I kept saying over and over in a soft voice, but apparently not too soft. I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is happening. And my daughter from the uh, living room, a few yards away called out, will you stop saying that? I'm trying to FaceTime with my friend. So <laughs> I, it's, it is, it is surreal. It is frightening. And um, I can't believe it's happening. I wanted to ask you about the the other dynamic because obviously in addition to being a rabbi you're also a husband and you're the father of two girls. How do you balance that? How do you handle balancing the external responsibilities with your need to be there for your family in this unprecedented time? Well, on the one hand, being essentially uh, locked in 
I'm around my family all the time. And um, I draw tremendous strength from that. Now, my parents um, don't live far from me, but obviously it's hard to, to see them, you know, not wanting to um, risk getting them sick should I pick something up outside. And I worry, you know, I worry about my family's health um, every moment of every day. Um, but I thank God that they're okay. And, um, and that gives me strength to be able to go about uh, about the work that I that I do. You so say you were a rabbi at a different temple in Manhattan during 9-11, and you had to help the community through that very difficult time. And now you're dealing with this. And I'm wondering, how do the two compare? And, and to what extent did that experience prepare you for this? That's a really interesting question. And I've heard people on TV um, talk about the two. Each, obviously, is a crisis. One was, one is. And I think that having lived through one and worked through one prepares you a little bit to be able to work in a crisis mode. You learn what's really important and what uh, can wait. But on the, the other hand, these two crises are very different. One took place on a, on a given day, but it was somewhat defined to a particular area and to a particular group of, of heroes who were involved in the recovery. But this is different. Uh, we're all in, in jeopardy. And um, all of our admiration for the healthcare workers who are really putting their well-being at risk, would it be that we all could could be able to support them uh, in the way they need it? Do you think that moments like that and moments like this bring about a reappreciation or a resurgence in the need for spiritual connection in our lives? Yeah, I think people really do. They need a moral touchstone. They need a an anchor uh, of stability. People need faith. If it's not in God, then it's in the future. And uh, institutions that are bedrock institutions uh, can provide that. It's hard to look into the future right now, but what do you hope comes out of all of this when there is sort of a light at the end of the tunnel here? Well, I hope that people remember the outreach of their neighbors and of people they didn't even know. I hope people remember what it feels like when a country sets as best it can its divisions aside um, for the greater good. I hope people remember that they as individuals and we as a society have the ability to rise above adversity, that our creativity is really extraordinary, that there isn't anything that we can't conquer if together we set our minds to it. And I hope, and I think it's going to take some time, that people remember that joy is a very important part of life, that they're able to set the anxiety aside for moments at a time, 
short moments perhaps at first, but then greater moments as days pass and uh, begin to return to some uh, sense of normalcy again. So even in a post-COVID world, there might be elements of this that we can take forward that could be beneficial in the long run? Yes. I I think that this is a test for our society, uh, not just domestically, but it's a test of our relationships with other countries. And we can't help but learn from it. I don't just want us to be better armed against the next disaster. I also, you know, want us to be as best we can uplifted by the knowledge that, that we have the ability to to work together and to overcome these sorts of things. Can you think of a moment in this new reality where you thought to yourself, okay, some things haven't changed. We still are connected in ways that are so important. Is there a moment that sticks out where you think, yeah, we can get through this and this is going to be okay? So this past Sunday, I was teaching um, my confirmation class, a group of uh, ninth graders. We were all gathered using Zoom. I actually had the best attendance I'd had all year. They were all there. You know, I asked my questions. They raised their hands using the chat function. They gave their answers. I asked them what was interesting about the last couple of weeks, what they were looking forward to. They were all looking forward to summer camp. You know, that hasn't changed. And they were their sweet ninth grade selves. And that really gave me a good, a good dose of, of hope and optimism. You know, I call congregants to see how they're doing. And they almost immediately ask me how I'm doing. How's your family? I am inspired by them without question. And we, you know, we laugh on the phone together about silly things. I am uplifted every day by uh, the members of my community whom I'm trying to lift up. Do you think in some ways this reminder of our global community could have long-term benefits as well? There's no question that it's a reminder that we're not an island. We have to respond in an appropriate way. We, it doesn't help when we start labeling the virus as having come from one country or another. The virus doesn't know any boundaries. So if we, if we approach it with the right mindset and try to take the, the politics and gamesmanship out of it, and many leaders are, then our global community can emerge stronger. Well, Josh, thank you for the work that you're doing to help us emerge stronger together. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And thank you for the work that you're doing. Voices of COVID-19 is an attempt to document the thoughts and feelings of people who are outside the limelight to show how a pandemic impacts our lives. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and join us for our next discussion with a television reporter in Los Angeles who will give her reflections on covering this pandemic and the spread in her community. If you know someone who might make a good guest on this podcast, please send them to me at brian at truevoicecommunications.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and separate, and we'll get through this together.